Uh, we, for some time now, have been in a study through the book of Matthew, although uh, it's kind of hard to tell here recently, really, because we've uh, taken so many breaks from it with graduation, and I was gone, and then we had a guest speaker. But we're going through the, the gospel of Matthew, and we are in the last week of Jesus' life. And uh, we've already been in the last week of Jesus' life for something like eight sermons since uh, the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. And what we've seen is that Jesus, in the last week of his life, he spends at least the first portion of that week, a great deal of time, locked in something of a battle of wits with his enemies. So, so Jesus spends a lot of the last week of his life in a battle of wits, arguments, with his enemies. And they have decided, the religious and civil leaders of Israel have decided they need to get rid of Jesus because they think he poses a threat to them. And they're right. He does. And but the problem for them in looking for a way to get rid of Jesus is Jesus still enjoys a lot of popularity, at least with a, among a certain segment of Israel, especially Galileans who have flooded into Jerusalem during this, the Passover week. So what they're going to do today starts a little bit of a different section in this last week. One at a time, or today we're going to see two at a time, different factions from among Israel's leadership are going to come to Jesus and set a trap for him, because they're going to try to get Jesus to say something that they can use to turn the tide of public opinion against him. They've tried this before, but this is going to be over the next several sermons, just rapid fire uh, trap setting by Jesus' enemies. And Jesus is going to expertly dispatch every one of these. Uh, he reminds me a little bit of a story that came out of Ohio State University years ago. There was a young man struggling through a college math class, and uh, the, the, the professor was something of a jerk, <laughs> uh, and he, he was one of those guys that kind of thought he was the, you know, since if he's a good, a good teacher, a tough teacher, lots of people will fail. I never understood that. I've always thought if you're a good teacher, people will actually, I don't know, learn, but whatever. That's just me, um, and he always gave timed exams, and this professor would walk around one hour to do all these upper-level math things, and then he would walk around, and every five minutes he would announce the time remaining to, to increase the pressure. You only have 45 minutes left. You only have 40 minutes remaining. And this poor kid always felt like, I could do this. I could do well just, but my anxiety gets the best of me, and with him walking around announcing how much time, if I just had more time, I'd be fine. So he got all the way to the final, and he had to do well to pass the class, or he was going to be right back in the same lecture hall with a thousand students again taking this class. So he got to the final, same thing, timed exam, professor walking around, marching, or, or marching around and calling out the time remaining, and this kid just decided, when he says time's up, I'm just not moving. I'm just going to stay here and finish my test. 
And he did that. It took a while for a thousand people to get up and turn their Scantron sheets in. Anybody remember those? Uh, And he just sat there and it took a long time for everybody to turn theirs in. And the place, but people trickled out. He's still working. 20 minutes later and the professor just sits up there shocked. This kid, he gets done with his test. It's been 25 minutes or so. He walks up to the front of the lecture hall with his little test sheet. And the professor says, what do you think you're doing? He said, well, I'm turning in my test. The professor says, I don't think so. You will fail. I'll see you next semester. You've exceeded the allotted time, yada, yada, yada. And the kid stops him and says, I disagree. The professor gets angry and the kid says, no, you don't understand. Do you know who I am? And then the professor really gets angry. So I don't know who you are, and I don't care, but you don't tell me, and I mean, you fail. And the kid says, no, seriously, do you even know my name? The professor says, no, I don't know your name, and I don't care about your name, and you'll fail. And the kid just walks up and shuffles his answer sheet in the middle of a thousand other ones and runs out of the lecture hall. Check mate. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but it's a great story, and I hope it's true. Uh, Jesus is going to just as, decis- just as decisively win these verbal arguments that his enemies bring to him uh, during, during this passage. That, you know, but that's not really a question. The question, it will not be, as we see, will Jesus win this battle of wits? That's not a question. You never want to get into a battle of wits with God. You're going to be outmatched. The question It's more like, why would Jesus engage these guys anyway? I don't think Jesus believed he was going to convert them into followers. So why does Jesus play along with these guys and answer their questions? There's at least two reasons. One, Jesus Jesus is playing these guys. If I were to ask you this Bible trivia question, how would you answer it? What was Jesus' ultimate goal of his ministry? Where was he going ultimately? And he knew it. He was going to the cross, right? It's why he came. So in some ways, Jesus sort of needs these guys to stay angry at him. So he engages them and he calls them like he will today, calls them hypocrites. And another place, he tells them that there are some tax collectors and some prostitutes who will be in heaven and you guys won't. That's a pretty good way to keep religious leaders angry at you. But there's another reason that Jesus will dive into all of these these little traps. Uh, Warren Wearsby, now the late Warren Wearsby, by the way. I don't know if Warren Wearsby died uh, several weeks ago. I don't know if any of you know who that is, but a great, he was the preacher to preachers, was his nickname. Good author. And he always taught about this section of Jesus' life. He compared it to Um, in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 12. You know the story of the Passover, the original Passover? That was when Charlton Heston was leading the Israelites out of Egypt, if you remember that. And and God told Moses in the last plague, I'm going to kill the firstborn among every family in Egypt. You remember that? Unless people did what? unless they put blood on a certain night around the doorpost of their house. Now, could they just use whatever blood they, they wanted? Or did it have to be, a, what kind of blood was it? It was the blood of a lamb. Could it just be any lamb? No, it had to be a spotless lamb without defect. Now, if you have a lamb, 
how, what do you have to do before you decide? I think this one's spotless and without, you have to examine it. Warren Wiersbe taught this portion of the last week of Jesus' life was the examination of the Lamb. Where the religious leaders of Israel came to him with questions and tests, and it's like they were turning him around, trying to find that defect they could use against him. Until even in, on his trial, Pontius Pilate, he washed his hands, and what did he say? I, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with this guy. I find no fault in this man. So that's, that's what we will be studying. The first test or trap these guys bring to Jesus is a legal one. They really are going to be asking about the legitimacy of the Roman dominance of, uh, of Israel. Let's read our passage. Matthew chapter 22. We're going to read verses 15 through 20. This will be the New American Standard Version on the screen and then your pew Bibles. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples, the Pharisees' disciples, to Jesus along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and you teach the way of God in truth and you defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus asked him whose likeness and inscription is on the coin. And they said to him, Caesar's. And then Jesus said to him, said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed or they were shocked or they marveled. And leaving him, they went away. There's our little story. It begins, um, Matthew gives us some, some sort of background information that happened before this story actually starts. Matthew says the Pharisees were sort of huddled together They'd put their heads together and to try to come up with a, a good trap to set for Jesus. And, and the story is the result of that meeting. This is what they came up with. Uh, the Pharisees, the, the, the leaders among the Pharisees had already been attacking Jesus, and that didn't go well, so they, they picked some of their younger ones. Maybe Jesus will go easier on them. And they take some of their disciples or their students, young Pharisees, and they send them to Jesus with the Herodians. Now, if you don't have a great grasp of first century Jewish politics, that may not, grab, may not grab you the way it would have grabbed the initial audience. But the Pharisees and the Herodians don't play together well in this day and age. They're not natural allies. The Pharisees we would probably call Israeli nationalists. Okay, They believe because... Uh, God gave the promised land to the descendants of Jacob that any uh, dominance by, in this case, the Romans is illegitimate. And the Romans should be kicked out. The Herodians, on the other hand, you see, you might see the word Herod in their name. They were supporters of the various Herods, which made them more accommodating to the Romans because the Herods got their sort of license to rule from the Romans. So the Herodians were friendlier toward the Romans. And so this, this, 
these two groups that don't normally get along, they just have a common enemy in Jesus, and that's who comes today to set this trap. And by the way, each side has a different side in the very question they bring. We'll see that in a minute. And the way they come at Jesus reminds me of something else I read in the Psalms of David recently. Uh, David one time wrote this in Psalm 62 about himself in the third person. He said, how long will you threaten a man? All of you are murderers. You're as dangerous as a leaning wall or an unstable fence. They spend all their time planning how to bring him down. They love to use deceit. They pronounce blessings with their mouths, but inwardly they utter curses. This was not written about Jesus, I don't believe, but it sure could have been. Because this is what these guys do. They're like a leaning wall. Think of a stone wall that's so old, it's going to fall down any minute, ready to fall on Jesus. And these guys, what they do today is they pronounce blessing with their mouth. They use deceit. And inwardly, they, they utter curses. Here's the deceitful part. They, they come to Jesus with just straight up flattery. You know what flattery is, right? Just kind of trying to grease the skids here a little bit. In verse 16, what they say to Jesus is absolutely true. They really nail Jesus here. Here's what they say. They say, teacher, we know you're truthful. We know you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You do not court anyone's favor because you show no partiality. There's nothing that's not correct right there. Jesus was a great teacher. He was, they speak to his integrity. He was truthful. He did teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. In fact, Jesus taught that he was the way to God, right? And then the, the last sentence there gets translated. There's a Greek figure of speech. So it gets translated a, a few different ways in our English versions. But you can catch the sense from any of them. Here's what they say in that last sentence. That uh, you don't court anyone's favor because you show no partiality. What they say to Jesus there is, you always tell the truth no matter who's listening. Whether they were like it or not. You don't change what you would say based on who's listening. It didn't matter if Jesus was talking to a tax collector or a rich young ruler or a prostitute or a Pharisee or a scribe. He said the truth, right? Now, so the problem with what they say right there is not that it's not true. It's that they don't believe a word of it. This uh, translation on the screen is the New English translation, the Net Bible. And their editors add the following footnote at the end of verse 16. They say this, Very few comments in the New Testament are as deceitful as this one. They did not really believe this at all. They don't believe that Jesus is truthful and teaches the way to God. They think he's a liar. And they don't believe he is impartial because they know he has a bias against them. But here's why Jesus is going to call them hypocrites in one second. Do you see their hypocrisy? Not only do they say something they don't believe, check this out. Would you agree that they, be, they do believe all this stuff they say is complimentary? 
Those are good things. You have a lot of integrity. No matter who's listening, you always say the truth. You're impartial. Those are good things. And they've already demonstrated they are not like that at all. It's been a few weeks for us, but it's been like 24 hours for Jesus. Remember Jesus asked these guys' bosses about John the Baptist. Hey, tell me about John the Baptist's ministry. Did God, was that from God or did John just make that up? Do you remember that question in chapter 21? They wouldn't answer. Do you remember why? They couldn't figure out how to answer in a way that everyone would like. So they didn't answer. See, they are the opposite of what they know is good and right. They tell Jesus, you say the truth no matter who doesn't like it. But they're not like that at all. So this is just, it's just simple flattery. This is why I put uh, Proverbs 29.5, part of that verse on the screen up here. The one who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his steps. Ever know anybody does that? Ever know anybody when they start complimenting you that you, you know they want something? I, I do this to Zoe sometimes. If I call Zoe and I start telling Zoe like how nice she looks and how much I appreciate her, she will always laugh and say, what do you want? She knows I want her to play the piano for something that's not Sunday morning uh, when that happens. The one who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his steps. This is, this is the bait for the trap. Here's what they've said. You always tell the truth, Jesus, right? No matter who gets mad, you say what's God's truth every time, no matter what, right? Then answer us this. You think we as Jews should be paying taxes to the Romans? Remember, you just told, we just agreed you always tell the truth no matter who gets angry. You see what they're doing? This is a, uh, by the way, a very specific, well, uh, or especially worded, specifically worded question. They think they've painted Jesus into a corner. They think they're asking him one of these questions that there's no good, simple answer to. You ever hear a question like that? Like if I ask you, uh, have you stopped? Um, have you stopped abusing children yet, or not? There's no good, simple way to answer that question, right? Because if I say, if you say yes, that means I've stopped, but I used to. And if I say no, that means I'm continue to abuse kids. That's what they think they've done with Jesus here. No good answer, and they've worded this very specifically. There's a there's a there's a Greek word in here in the New American. It got translated poll tax. Did you hear that? And this one just says taxes in general. Well, this is about a specific tax called a cane saw, the cane sauce. The cane sauce was a tax every adult male uh, in a conquered area. Here it's Israel, but anywhere in the Roman Empire they had to pay this tax. It was called a poll tax because you, you, know, you had to register and they knew how many people were there and everybody, every adult male had to pay this. And what they want Jesus to say, they assume Jesus won't say, yes, we should pay this tax because then, I mean, he's claimed to be the Messiah. He just rode into Jerusalem in a way that was like holding up a sign saying, I am the Christ. 
You can't claim to be the king of kings and the lord of lords and pay tribute to the Romans. Here's what they want him to say. They want, him, they want to force his hand and say, you know what? You're right. We shouldn't be paying that specific tax because that tax, to not pay it, was rebellion. And if they can get Jesus to say, you know what? It's time I'm fully honest with everybody. Because I think I'm the Christ or the Messiah, it's time to stop paying tribute to the Romans. And then they can use that against Jesus to the Romans. If he does say we should keep paying it, then they can say to the Jews, what kind of weak Messiah thinks we should still be paying tribute um, to the pagans, to the Romans? So that's the, that's the trap. Jesus answers in most of the rest of the passage. First, Matthew tells us that he sees through their smokescreen. He sees their evil intentions. He calls them hypocrites. But then he decides he's going to go ahead and answer. He says, hey, bring me a coin that's used to pay this tax. That would have been a denarius. They look something like this. Um, these are, you know, an ancient Roman printed coin. He says, whose picture's on this and whose inscription? On the archaeology tells us that uh, on the denarius, the emperor Tiberius, that's his picture, and as far as archaeology goes, uh, they have found two different inscriptions, two different sort of printings of these coins uh, that was used to pay this tax, and the inscription said things like this. Um, one of them said of Tiberius, son of divine Augustus, like son of God. Another one said that he was uh, God and high priest. You know, the Romans thought their emperors were, were gods. Not only gods, but high priest to himself. I don't know how that works, but that's what the coin said. So he says, bring me that. Whose picture is this? Whose inscription is it? They say, well, it's Caesar's. And then Jesus replies, uh, what would become some of the most famous words in the New Testament? You don't have to have grown up in church for this to sound familiar. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That's what Jesus says. So, according to Jesus, is it right? Is it lawful? Is it biblical for the people of God to pay taxes to a godless government? Yes. Yes, it is. Um, if that's not enough for you, later on, look up Romans chapter 13. The Apostle Paul will take Romans 13 and, and expound upon this. hate to be the bearer of bad news, but we're supposed to pay our taxes, no matter how wicked our government gets. But Why? Just from these verses, why does Jesus say it's okay even for people who follow the King of all kings and Lord of all lords to pay taxes? Do you see it? He picks up that coin and he, it's like he says this. Whose picture is that? Caesar's. Okay, so here is something you're holding. It was obviously created by Caesar's authority. And it was stamped with his image. 
What could possibly be wrong for us to give back to him something that obviously he has a claim to? Like, it's his picture. He made it. A, a, a little bit like if, if you lost your wallet and somebody found it and opened it up and it's got your driver's license in there with your image on it, what should they do with that? Just say finders, keepers, losers, weepers? No, the right thing to do would be to give back to you that which is under your authority and it bears your image. What could be wrong giving back to him what really rightfully is his? But that's only half of the story, half the answer. This story is not only about the biblical mandate for Christians to pay our taxes. The second part's probably even more important where Jesus says, you give back to Caesars the things that are Caesars, like that coin. And he says, and give to God the things that are God's. When Jesus wanted to teach that it was biblical and right for godly people to pay taxes to a godless government, he grabbed a coin because it was stamped with Caesar's image and created under his authority. Where would Jesus go to find something that was created by God's authority and was stamped with the image of God? That's all the people who were standing there. Every person who's ever been born was created by the authority of God and has been indwelt with this, the image of God, stamped with the image of God. Genesis 1.27, uh, God created mankind in his own image, right? And in his likeness, we we're made in the image of of God. And so Jesus tells these guys, you guys are asking the wrong question. Instead of worrying about whether or not we should give this stupid coin back to the one who printed it, have you given to God what is rightfully God's? God has right to you because he created you and he stamped you with his image. He has claim to your whole life. Now, Jesus would teach, as they said, the way to God. The only way we can give ourselves to him is through the cross of Jesus Christ. For us, we know that now. All right, the answer's so good. I didn't fit it on the screen, but in verse 22, they're shocked, they're stunned, they're amazed. They marvel at his answer, and the curtain sort of closes on this scene. So what do we learn from this passage? I'm not sure that we're taught anything new by this passage, but we are sure reminded of some things that we are taught elsewhere in Scripture. First, we learn, we're reminded that God uses, I would even add, God ordains and uses godless governments. From the very beginning, I'm going to talk through God's use of godless governments for a little bit. From the very beginning of Scripture almost, even in the book of Genesis, excuse me, <coughs> sorry, even in the book of Genesis, God had already started using godless pagan governments for his own uses in redemptive history. Okay, God promised a man named Abram, you're going to have 
a huge family, and I'm going to make a great nation out of that family. What's the name of that family in that nation? Please, come on. Israel. It's the part where you pretend you've been paying attention. It's good for my heart. What was the name of that family? Yeah, all right, thank you. It, Israel, Jacob's kids, they got so wicked God was like, man, I can't even keep my promise if I just leave you guys here. You're going to be more pagan than the pagans. So God used the nation of Egypt like an incubator. He took all of Jacob's kids and grandkids. He picked them up and he transplanted them into the nation of Egypt. And then the Egyptians hated the Hebrews, thought they were disgusting, so they wouldn't intermarry with them. And they grew and grew and grew and grew. And that's how God used Egypt, a godless pagan country, to keep his promises to his people. After he takes them out, led by, again, Charlton Heston, and puts them back into the promised land, they're unfaithful again. And then God uses other wicked, pagan, violently wicked and pagan people, like the Assyrians and the Babylonians, to discipline Israel and to instruct Israel that God is serious about obedience, and they go into uh, captivity in Babylon. And then God uses the Persians. He changes the heart of a Persian king to allow them to go home back to the promised land. And that's why Israel in Jesus' day still lives in Israel. Then, and we can read of these next two, uh, uh, God predicted these in the book of Daniel. God ordained a man by the name of Alexander the Great the great Macedonian or Greek conqueror. God allowed this man to become a military genius, maybe the greatest the world has ever known, to conquer the entire world that he knew. And as he conquered, he took Greek culture and Greek language with him so that within a few decades of Alexander's death, the entire known world to those folks could understand and read and communicate in his language, Greek. File that away for a second. Then God allows the next beast from the sea, if you're following through, uh, uh, or part of that beast, following through Daniel, the Romans, to conquer Alexander's empire and expand it. And the Romans, being great engineers, they built this huge system of roads and the Romans were the best peacekeepers in the history of mankind. To where, for the first time in world history, people could travel long distances to faraway lands in relative safety. Because the Romans were the best police force and judicial system the world had ever seen. Now why do I tell you all that? Here's where we jump back into today's story. Remember that tax? They come to Jesus and ask Jesus about the cane sauce, the poll tax. That's how the Romans paid for their empire. We're going to conquer you, but we're going to protect you. And we're going to provide this infrastructure and these roads and bridges and aqueducts and a judicial system and all this stuff. But you've got to help us pay for it. And so the Romans made this tax system and they would auction off a job as a tax collector like our author Matthew had. You'd buy that job 
And then the Romans would tell you, based on the population of your area, how much of this tax money you were supposed to turn in to them. But how do they know how many people live in a certain area? What do we do still today to figure out how many people? We do a census. And if we would go back in the beginning of the Gospels, we'd hear a story that goes like this. Once upon a time, the Romans called a census for this tax. And they made everybody go back to their hometown. For most people, they already lived in their hometown or very, very close. But there was a man of Nazareth by the name of Joseph and his wife Mary was very super pregnant. But they had to go to the, the, the town of his ancestry, Bethlehem, so he could register for this very tax. And I tell you all that just to show you this. For centuries and centuries and centuries, the God of the universe had been playing the godless governments of the world like a fiddle so that that tax at that time would cause that man with that wife and dwelt with the Messiah to go to that place, Bethlehem, so that the Savior of the world would be born exactly where God promised he would be born. And when that baby grows up, and where we are in our story, and he gets crucified and he buried, and he rises again. He's going to get the band back together one more time, his disciples, and he's going to give them the great commission, and he's going to tell them to go where? Go where? Into the whole world and preach the gospel. Now, how are these guys supposed to travel through the whole world and talk to people who speak languages they don't understand? I know, because God had already ordained to build a system of roads and police forces and safety and a language that could be understood through the whole known world. And then as these guys go and preach the gospel and the Romans try to stamp them out as they go, their own system the Romans made work against them because every time they try to squash the church, it can safely travel to a new place where there's more people who understand the language these guys decided to write down these stories in. Why did they write Greek? Because they were Greek speakers? No, they spoke Aramaic. They wrote Greek because that's what other people understood. Can the God of the universe ordain and use godless governments to his purposes? Can he do that in ways where the people living under them can't even tell what he could possibly be thinking by allowing it? Absolutely. Do you think he stopped doing that? Not by a long shot. That's why the second thing we're reminded today is that we are called as Christians to submit to godless governments. Just because we can point to the wickedness of our government does not give us an excuse to not obey the governing authorities that are over us, as Paul would later say. We, we operate with, under the benefit of the civic institutions that our government either creates or protects. Right? We use the infrastructure, the roads, the bridges, the utility systems, um, healthcare schools, the courts, the economic system, the banking industry, all of it. And that gives us some civic responsibilities. So we cannot withhold our civic responsibilities just because our government happens to be corrupt or, wi or wicked, of which ours is both. How do I know this? How can I be sure of this? 
Because when Paul taught us and when Peter taught us that we have to do this with the governing authorities God has allowed to be over us, Nero was the emperor. When Paul said, you have got to submit to the government over you, Nero was the government. Nero is the guy that started the policy of soaking Christians in pitch and lighting them on fire. Feeding Christians to wild animals in, th- in front of sold-out arenas. That Nero. Paul said, Christian, you've got to obey that guy. Now, because we live in a democracy, which is much different than Paul or Peter lived in, our civic obligations are different. Because we're also obligated to try to influence our government and policy and leaders. And there are even ways for us that are under the authority of our government to protest what our government does. That's part of our system as long as it's done correctly. But when we don't get our way, the biblical stance is still to hope and pray for the success of a godless government. I'll show you why I say that. 600-ish years before Jesus was standing in Jerusalem, there was another prophet in Jerusalem. His name was Jeremiah. And Jeremiah brought the people of Judah the bad news. He brought them this news. The Babylonians are going to come in and destroy you and carry you away. And then God, through Jeremiah, taught people after that happens, after Nebuchadnezzar comes in, levels the place, puts hooks in your nose and drags you back to Babylon. Here's what you are to do while you are in Babylon, God says. By the way, the Babylonians were violently wicked. The Lord God of Israel who rules over all says to those that he, he's speaking as this as if it's already happened, but it was in the future. Those he will send into exile to Babylon from Jerusalem. Here's the directive. When you get there, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and allow your daughters to get married so that they too can have sons and daughters. Grow in number. Do not dwindle away. I'll stop right there, which means if so-and-so wins this election, I'm moving. It's not biblical. By the way, I've said this before, none of us hardly would be here because I've been here long enough now that if Obama won his second term, half the people were leaving, and if Trump won this term, the other half were leaving, and where is everyone? We're all still here. Settle down. Live. You're supposed to be a light in that wicked place. And then get this. Work to see that the city where I sent you as exiles. You know what that city was? Babylon. A city synonymous for wickedness in the Bible. The city where I sent you, Babylon. Work to see that Babylon enjoys peace and prosperity. Pray to the Lord for the peace and the prosperity of Babylon. For as it prospers, you will prosper. Our example of this is Daniel, who worked for the Babylonians and the Persians. These wicked, godless governments. 
We are so stuck right now in America. We do not want the success and the prosperity of our government unless the party I belong to is in charge of the government. I want the failure of, my, of this government until my party is on top. It's unbiblical. And it doesn't matter whose party's, whose party's in there. And finally, I need to land the plane here. Last thing we're reminded though, really we do number one and two because number three is true. Our ultimate obligation is to God. Do you know why I can submit to this godlessly wicked government I find myself under? Because my ultimate obligation is to a higher power. Not a party, not a leader, not a ruler, but to God. And if I give to God what is God's, which is all of me, one and two will be one of the numerous things that comes out of a submitted Christian. Paul would say it this way, because our ultimate obligation is to God. We're to be, Romans 12, to living sacrifices. Present your body a living sacrifice, right? Alive, holy, pleasing to God. That's your spiritual act of service. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for the genius of our Lord Jesus who uh, could answer these questions flawlessly and teach us that, yes, we're to submit to government, but because we have given ourselves to you, God, we are rebels at heart. We do not submit easily, not to governments, not to parents, not to teachers, and not to our Creator. God, lead us. Soften our hearts that we might give what is God's back to God, our very lives and all they are. And God, we long for the day, come quickly, Lord Jesus, when our government, submitting to our government and submitting to you will be the very same thing. We long for your return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, but help us to submit to you and to those you've put over us in the meantime while we wait. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.